we're going to do kind of a uh, quick review of some of what we talked about last week. And I'm going to dive in because there's a ton to cover. So uh, go ahead and just get yourself geared up for quite a bit of truth from God's word. And uh, we're in, we looked at this last week. We didn't get through it all. First Corinthians 5. So if you missed last week, you'll get a little bit of review. You'll get caught up. And then we'll dive into the rest of the passage. If you remember, we talked about the fact that Christ made us pure and that it's important for us to live in that purity. And we're going to talk a lot about that and we're going to go into some detail. And I wouldn't really call it a rabbit trail, but we're going to zoom really uh, in on this truth. And then we'll kind of look again back at the context of the passage and apply it to that. But as a review, you remember there was this group. Uh, the Corinthians, Paul writes to them because there was some kind of sexual immorality, and most would call it incest, going on in the church. And so I'm just going to read through, make a couple quick uh, reminders, and then we'll move into the verses we didn't get to. Since it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. It was this young man was with his stepmom. We don't know a lot of other details besides the fact that this was something that was very blatant. It was not just like, well, is that wrong? I'm not sure what's really going on here. It says this kind of stuff is not even named among the Gentiles, not even named among the heathens. The pagans don't even uh, don't even approve of this kind of thing. And he's upset because he's, they're not condemning it. They're not upset about it. They're not addressing it. Instead, it says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. In other words, there's no sorrow. There's no sadness. There's no heart of repentance about this. You guys are actually celebrating this sexual deviance. And so uh, just a re reminder, this word uh, immorality is where we get our word pornography from. And the idea here is that it's anything outside the design for sex that God has designed between one man, one woman, and anything outside of that is immorality. Uh, one man, one woman married. Anything outside of that is immorality. And he says, you know, it's, this is not... Uh, again, one of these things where it's like, well, I'm not really sure what's going on here, but they were somehow proud of it. We're not sure what exactly they were proud of. It may have been the fact that, you know, we're a really gentle, gracious congregation, and we don't blow people out of the water for this kind of thing. We're just patient with them. Uh, you know, we're, we're not looking at uh, this sin issue. We just want to make sure they feel welcomed. We don't know if it was that. And they were kind of proud of how accepting they were. Or if they were uh, proud of we're so free in Christ that we have all kinds of freedom in Christ, we can do whatever we want. And we made the connection that the church has no excuse for celebrating pride uh, when it comes to any kind of sin, but it's particularly in this passage, sexual perversion. And we do see that happening in our culture. Now the church is more and more embracing sexual sin, sexual deviance, and even proud about it. There are churches that celebrate Pride Month. And again, this whole message is not about sexual immorality. 
but this is a really good reminder for churches that think that it's okay to endorse, approve, accept these things. It's not. We don't hate those people that are doing that. We don't hate Christians or non-Christians that are doing that. We, but we also are not endorsing it and saying it's okay. Right? You with me? Okay. This seem familiar for, for you? And then Paul says, for indeed, I am absent in body, but present in spirit. I have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. So in other words, he's like, I'm not even in your midst, but I have something to say about this. I, I have evaluated the situation and I have something to say. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of Jesus. I know I'm moving really quick because this is a review, but essentially what he's saying here is, hey, next time you guys meet together, I want you to stand in the authority that I'm giving you as an apostle, and I want you to stand in the authority of Jesus Christ and us as your witnesses, and that's usually in their legal proceedings or in uh, affairs. They would have two witnesses present to make something valid. And so you hear of Paul and Christ as the witnesses. Standing on that authority, I want you to address this man, and it says, deliver him over to Satan, so that's one thing, so that his spirit may be saved. And we talked about that, and the idea is delivering over to Satan, we believe, means remove him from fellowship, remove him from the church, or the destruction of his flesh, and we talked about the fact that that probably means that he can just suffer the earthly consequences of his sin and that that would be something that would have an effect on him that would hopefully turn him towards repentance. Without getting too far off track here, I'm going to just say, if you read 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 5 also, I may be wrong, 6, there's a guy in there and he goes, hey, you guys are being too hard on this guy. He's repented. Back off. And so some people think it's this guy, like he did end up repenting, and then they kept hammering him. So the idea here is that they want to see repentance in this person, and when there's repentance, you don't keep pounding somebody over the head. So I don't know if that's the same person or not, but he says, deliver them over for essentially discipline. This is a discipline step. So in other words, if we had addressed some sin here and there was uh, an attitude of I don't really care. I'm doing it anyways. I'm going to continue on in my sin. At some point, we may have to ask that person not to fellowship with us anymore. We may need to sever fellowship, connection, relationship with that person with the hopes that they would just be out in the world, living the ways of the world, and that that would run its course and be like, I'm done with this world stuff. It stinks. I need Christ. And so that's kind of the idea here. I talked about these things because you're kind of like, okay, so what should we do? Because we could probably go around this room and pick out sin that all of us and go like, okay, so who are we going to address? Let's address Katie this week. Katie, get up here. Uh, and we could just go. Um, well, yeah, it's like save our bath. That's a whole different thing. So, so the idea here would be there are some principles in scripture we can look at because otherwise we're going around and we're being fruit inspectors and saying, you're not doing this, or you're doing this wrong, uh, you're doing that wrong, you need to leave. The idea here, I said, was the log principle. Before you go 
worrying about everybody else's sin. Make sure you're addressing your own sin. Don't try and pick splinters out of other people's eyes if you, if you have a log in your own eye. So one, it doesn't mean you ignore their sin, but do be looking at yourself. Two, there's church discipline that in scripture gives a, a program for this, and it's address the person individually. If they don't repent, go with a couple people. If they don't repent, then you address them as a congregation and ask them to leave the church. It's not just up to the church leaders. It's not just up to Ned and I to pick somebody out and David and to go, you know what, so-and-so sin and let's kick them out. That's not our job. The job is for us as a congregation to be addressing these things within the congregation. And there are steps to do it. And at any point when there's repentance, that process is over. You, you stop there. And then there's the repentance principle, uh, again, where the idea is this is a heinous sin that's not being repented of. We're not just supposed to go around nitpicking each other. As I think, as you know, you probably, many of you and myself struggle with particular sins. And we continue to go before the Father, and we want to have victory, we want to learn. I don't think, based on Scripture, that this is the situation here. This is a sin that was blatant, obvious, and that they were proud and celebrating. So when that attitude exists, and someone's proud in their sin, then this would be something to address. Make sense? Okay. So verses 6 through 8. Give a zero in there on uh, more, what I would say, uh, the new stuff. So your glorying is not good. So being all proud about this is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So he's basically saying, like, you guys are like a, a lump of dough. And when in that, if you have a little bit of sin in your congregation, and this kind of sin, it's going to spread. That's one of the reasons we do address sin. That's why we should address sin in our own life. Most people don't end up in some kind of disastrous sin disaster if they're checking it when it's small sin, right? One or two small decisions can steer you off course. And so if you're not paying attention to those small things and in your own personal life, and we as a church just ignore this sin, ignore that sin, ignore this sin, it will end up infiltrating the whole church. That's why you look at some of these churches that are, and again, I don't want to make this all about celebrating pride or whatever, the, uh, whatever phrase you want to use, but you want to know, like, how could they get there? How could they be okay with that? It's because a little bit of sin was left unattended. And it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. The same thing can happen right here. Our sin, my sin, affects this whole congregation. Your sin affects this whole congregation, not just you. And so he says, purge out the old leaven. In other words, just get rid of the sin. You need to deal with the sin so that you could be a fresh, healthy, reinvigorated body. Since you are truly unleavened, their true identity is pure, sinless. They have been given a sinless spirit individually and corporately. Now, do these people seem sinless? Is this kind of weird? He says, get rid of the sin, which I don't know how much we'll spend on it, but you truly 
are unleavened. Doesn't that seem a little contradictory? Get out the old leaven. He's basically saying, you guys got sin, but you're sinless. But that's confusing, right? A little bit. So let's look at what he's talking about here. So Passover, if you look at this thing, it says, for indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So here he's going to say how this tells us how we became truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover. So you want to know how we became here? It's because Christ was sacrificed for us. So I'm not going to read all this in detail, but most of you know the, uh, and understand the story of Passover. So originally, God's people, the Jewish people, the Israelites were being held in captivity in Egypt. And through Moses, Moses went and told Pharaoh, hey, let God's people go. They need to be free. Pharaoh's like, ah. Uh -uh. So these plagues kept coming and coming and coming. And then even after these series of horrible uh, plagues, Pharaoh kind of would kind of go, okay, 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 I'll give in. And then he would harden his heart. And he wouldn't do it. So finally, God sent the last one was an angel of death to come through and kill, kill the firstborn all through the land of Egypt. That's the last plague. Pharaoh's son, any firstborn were going to be killed. And God said, I have a way to protect those who trust me. Take a lamb, slaughter that lamb, put blood over the lentil or the header of the door and on the post of the door and i will that angel of death will pass over and those people in that house that family will be delivered by the blood of that animal and so that's what happens and so when 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 paul says christ is our passover really what he's saying is christ is the one who was sacrificed for us so that we could be delivered from sin. Does that make sense? So he says, Christ is our Passover. You're kind of like, what? And so we would celebrate this now in communion. So communion originally, when Christ instituted it, started out during the Passover meal. And he kind of changed it up. He said, now here's, here's the new Passover, if you will. I'm not saying they shouldn't. People shouldn't still celebrate Passover, but what he's saying in essence is you guys are celebrating the deliverance back then, but the new deliverance is you've been completely delivered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You with me? Yeah. So then they started celebrating this meal annually. They were told to do it. And the unleavened bread is a symbol that the Israelites needed to leave quickly. The Egyptians urged, so this is the scripture I'm reading here. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said we will all die. So the Egyptians are going, God's plan worked. The Egyptians are going, please leave. Now they're like begging them, get out, please get out. We don't want you around here anymore. We're all going to end up dying. So the people, the Israelites, took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in eating troughs wrapped in clothing. And so that's kind of this picture of unleavened bread. And then they're told to keep remembering and doing this Passover meal every year to remember what God had done. And again, communion is our new memorial. This is all going to hopefully click together here in just a second.
So as this meal continued from generation to generation, people would remove the yeast because they were originally told, when you celebrate this meal, you do it with unleavened bread. And then as the years went on through generations, the teaching came to mean to symbolize the removal of sin. Jesus and Paul even used this in their teaching. And so now if you celebrate uh, Passover, what they would do, I believe it's the day before, they go all through the house and they even use a feather to kind of symbolize and they'll do in the windowsills and everything to get rid of any kind of leaven that might be in the house because they want to celebrate that meal with the purity that it was meant to be in the original way that with unleavened bread. So they need to make sure no yeast snuck in. So what Paul here is saying is, hey, you guys are a clean batch of dirt. And you know how you got to be clean? You got to be clean because of Jesus Christ. He's your deliverer. You are eleven. You're without sin. I said that to you right now. You're without sin. Would you agree with that? It's kind of what? I said it to the Corinthians. What are the Corinthians like? He said, you know what that's in. So despite the obvious sin, God has done something because deeper than the living experience. God is talking now, Paul is talking about something that goes deeper than the living experience. And he says, it's not sin. It's sin, correct, correct. It's beyond that. This is a Passover. Christ divided our deliverance. Our sinlessness comes from Christ's sacrifice. Jesus says that he sends Just in case you're was made a sinner, just like a sinner, and sacrificed as a sinner should be. For us. And in that sacrifice, I'm not saying I sinned because he no sin, but what he's saying is he was treated as a, the most sinful. All of our sins upon him. So that we might become what? Now, here's what a lot of people say, and I understand why they say this. They will say, God's declared you righteous. I agree with that. God has declared us righteous. But in their mind, there's this little switch. 
And it's kind of like, you're not really righteous. God's just saying you're righteous and seeing you as righteous. That makes no sense. Then God would not be telling the truth. If he's declaring me righteous and I'm not righteous, he's declaring something that's not even true. So either I'm righteous or I'm not righteous. Either I'm clean or I'm not clean. Either you're clean or you're not clean. You're either righteous or you're not righteous. Are you with me? It's confusing though, right? Who here feels clean all through the week? Who here feels righteous all through the week? Well, let's talk a little bit about why that is. There's this line, and, and this isn't all for me. I've been reading a book that I feel like puts a lot of these things uh, in perspective, and, and I got some of this. It's, it's a little bit of it switched up into my own way of communicating it, but really there's two realms operating all the time. The unseen, and so we'll say this is the dividing line between those two realms, which we'll read that verse in a minute. The unseen is real, permanent, eternal, and complete. Okay? That's the unseen realm. The seen is full of illusion, things that are constantly changing, what's temporary and in process. So let me give two examples. Permanent and changing. Right now, if I am made righteous, is that permanent or changing? Permanent. Now, in the seen realm, what you see, what I see in myself, is my righteousness changing or unchanging? Changing from day to day, right? But what's really true and what's permanent, what's more important is this realm right here. This is what God is operating in. The unseen. We put our eyes on what's temporary. We put our eyes on what's in the process. And God is seeing us as complete. And so real and illusion, uh, according to God, he says, consider all joy, my brothers, when you experience various trials. That's from the unseen realm. That's a real truth. Trials can bring maturity. That's seeing with the, un, un, the eyes, spiritual eyes, right? And so that's a truth. Now, the illusion is, when I just look at the scene, trials stink. Trials make, should make us sad. Trials means some is all bad. Is that true? Well, there's truth to it. I mean, it's bad. It's difficult. There is sorrow involved in trials. So we don't want to just negate that and go like, oh, it's totally imaginary world. But what's more important is what's permanent, real, eternal, and complete. And so what we need to do is have our eyes adjusted to viewing things through the spiritual realm. Most of us are just viewing things on a seen from a seen perspective. Does this make sense? I know it's a little like, it seems kind of like foggy or mystical. So first or second Corinthians four says this, therefore we do not lose heart. He's talking about his trials, even though our outward man is perishing. That's the seen. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. That's the unseen. 
for a light affliction, which is but for a moment. That's the scene. There's affliction. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's the unseen. He says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, remember, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Now put that in context of our passage. You're holy. That's unseen. But it's eternal. That's eternal. That's looking at things that are eternal. You're holy. What do we see? <laughs> holy. What Paul says is our, our perspective needs to start and the, the um, priority of our perspective should be on the unseen. We look at this world and what do we see? We want this mess cleaned up. We want this government fixed. We want these people to start doing that. We want our city officials to do this. We want our spouses to do that. We want our health to do this. And we want all of that can be seen from a spiritual perspective. From eternal perspective and it will change completely the way we live our lives but if we're viewing it just from the scene like paul is talking about afflictions are going to be horrible but he's saying hey we're in the middle of affliction but it's not that big a deal because we're viewing it with an eternal perspective so the true you a lot of passages talk about i've been crucified I have been crucified with Christ. We were buried with him. Uh, we have been united together in the likeness of his death. You are circumcised with the circumcision. That means there's some part of you that was removed, cut away from you, some taken away from you. Um, the circumcision, there's something removed. And so he's basically talking about there's part of you that's been crucified or circumcised or removed. And we've talked about this. So what is that? This is so familiar. Some of you guys, you're sick of it. But I, I feel like we got to get it. Some people do. This is what we're talking about. The spirit within us. We all have a body. We all have a soul. Our soul is made up of these are the things right now. These will be transformed, but right now, these are the things which are in the seen world. Does your mind change? Does your will or your decisions change? Does your emotions change? Does your body change? Yes, those are the seen things. Where do we put most of our emphasis in an everyday life? What's going on in our body and what's going on in our heart, right? That's usually where our perspective lies. So how in the world can Paul say, you are clean? He's wanting them to start buying into, don't put all this emphasis on the seen stuff, the feeling stuff. Start putting the emphasis on what's true, eternal, and permanent about you. That's what he's wanting them to see. And so then when he says you have been crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives. Did Paul literally die? Did he physically die? 
No. What died in Paul was crucified. This old part of him, his old spirit, the spirit of Adam. And the same is true for you. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, there's the old you is dead. You're like, no, it's not. It rears its head. Not true. The very core old you is dead. There may be some remnants of sin left in your body, in your mind, in your heart. But at the core, at the most important, unseen, permanent, eternal point, the old you is gone. And there is a new you. We have the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ. Some passages even talk about us having. So when he says, you've been born again, this is what was born. Right? And I think it was Nicodemus said, can I go back in the second time into the womb and be born again? He's like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something spiritual. Because our body isn't born again. Our body will be made new one day. Our mind, will, and emotions are not automatically born again. But this part of us is born again. And this is the part of us that Paul is saying, you are pure. You are unleavened. You are new. For indeed, Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Christ did that. It's not based on your behavior. So let's take a step back. And start to begin to put this into practice for our, ourselves or put this, contemplate this for ourselves. This week, you and I have sinned. Just fact. Does God want us to look at ourselves as sinners? I don't think so. Does God want us to ignore sin? Based on the passage, I don't think so. But we're supposed to be seeing that we have a whole other life that's been given to us. The old us is gone. And I think what he's wanting them to do is stand solidly on who Jesus Christ made us. And we have such a hard time with that because we're basing it on a good day, a bad day, an obedient day, a bad thing, a good thought, a bad thought. Rather than going, no, Christ, the Passover was sacrificed. He made me pure. And when we begin to just rest completely in that, I've been made new. It goes against every feeling you have. It goes against everything you see in your own life. It goes against what you see in other people's life. People can go, is Carly pure? Is Carly holy? Is Carly righteous? And be like, wow. I think she was doing good to, you know, about two minutes after she woke up and then no. Absolutely not. And she's, I was just going to say, I was going to say, and then, and then someone asked her, what about Rich? She's like, I think he was wrecked even before he got out of it. But the reality is, if we stand in the truth of who Christ has made us, and then we begin to realize this sin we deal with, the perspective, the way we're looking at things, whether we're good or bad on a particular day, begins to all really just diminish because a lot of times what we're doing is we're trying to focus on our sin from this soul level. 
Does that make sense? We're trying to focus on the sin, and without a doubt, we will never be able to fix the sin in our lives by focusing on the sin. We'll get to a verse here, I think, in a few minutes, that Paul says, there's nothing good that dwells in me, but yet we're trying to come up with some good, to make some good stuff happen. We really need to realize, like, I don't have it. Audio Bible. Uh, that's all right. That's all right. Sorry. <laughs> At least it was the Audio Bible. It wasn't like a sports game or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. I think what he's trying to tell us here is. We deal with the sin in our life based on who Christ has made us and what we really are. And that doesn't mean we excuse sin or we let sin uh, run rampant in our lives. He's obviously saying, get rid of this person that has this sin. Sin needs to be addressed, but it doesn't need to be addressed from the fact of, are you good? Are you bad? Are you? It's addressed from the point of who you are in Jesus Christ and you're standing in him. So if you kind of look at this, uh, you know, we were crucified. The old us died. Some people would not completely agree with that. And I understand like old nature, new nature, this, but the, the reality is we, we can't just view it as two dogs fighting. You know, sometimes people say that, like, which dog are you going to feed? Really? We need to realize that there are still sins in our life, but the dog fight really is over. The more we look at who we are in Christ and stand in that, and we do need to make choices. I understand I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. But we need to realize we can't give that more power than it really has. Like, oh, I'm just a big sinner. I'm just going to keep sinning. Oh, I'm just a big sinner. I'm going to keep sinning. I'm just a big sinner. He's wanting to realize, like, no, you're not. You're clean. A new us was created. The Spirit gave us life and righteousness. Therefore, if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. What do you think he's talking about there? What has passed away? Did their old behaviors pass away? Did their old experiences pass away? Did their old body pass away? That old spirit in them, the old them is gone, and the old you has been crucified. You've been made new. Behold, all things have become new. So I want to just give one more uh, little illustration here. So when we kind of look at, remember our line here? Between the eternal, the fixed, or the unseen and the seen, right? What we do is we usually, this is a, supposed to be like a pendulum swinging back and forth. We have our soul and our body experience here. And every day is we're somewhere on this spectrum in our mind where this is how we're viewing things. I shouldn't say, this is how a lot of us view things. Oh, my thoughts are good. My behaviors are good. And my feelings are good. So I'm good. My thoughts are bad. My behavior is bad. And my feelings are bad. So I'm bad. And what he's saying is, that's going to change every day, multiple times a day. What's going on in my body? What's going on in my mind? What's going on in my thoughts? What's going on? He does not, because you could see the church here was having 
a bad mindset, bad actions, bad activity, but what do we call them? Here. And so the, I think the key is for us to start standing here because this is no way to live. And many of us are, we're so fixated on if we're doing good, if we're being obedient, if we're having victory, if we're sinning, if we're not sinning, if we had a good thought, if we had a bad thought, if we're having good feelings, if we're having bad feelings, whatever people think of us, and we try and just like force the pendulum over here based on our own power, our own doing, our own good, our own works, our own effort. And I think what Paul wants us to realize is, no, you are made clean by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This doesn't have to do with you. Your cleanness does not have to do with you. You're clean, he says, to the group who's unclean. And that seems like he's totally contradicting himself. No, he's talking here about their cleanness. And he's referring them back to that. Here's the verse I was telling you about. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And I think a lot of times that's how we're trying to operate. Is that, And I would say like out of our soul, out of our mind, out of our will, I'm just going to make a decision not to do it anymore. I'm just going to start thinking good thoughts. I'm just going to change my attitude about it. Uh, I just need to have different feelings. I'm hoping we're trying to produce this goodness. And he's going, no good dwells in you. And your spirit does. For to will is to present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. In other words, I want to do good. Can you relate to that? I want to do good. But how to perform it? I can't find it. I can't figure out how to do good. Every morning I wake up wanting to be a better husband, wanting to be a better dad, wanting to be a better pastor, wanting to be a better neighbor. I can't figure it out. And even if I do, it's for two hours and I fall flat on my face. Over and over, the desire is there because I have God's spirit in me. That's the desire part is coming from that. But in myself, in my soul even, in my body, in my personality, in my personality is no good in and of itself. For the good I will to do, I do not do. But the evil, in other words, I want to do good, I don't do it. I want to stop doing evil, but I practice it. Now, if I do what I will but not do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin dwells in me. In other words, it's not you. The sin is the problem. And you may be like, man, you're just confusing me. We need to realize through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we were made clean. He's our Passover. It was sacrificed for us. We were made clean. We have sin to deal with, but we need to stop trying to deal with it in our own ways. And a lot of us try to handle, myself included, try to handle sin with our own, uh, like what Paul is talking about here is our own like sin handling measures. And it's a miserable Christian life. Instead of standing in the truth of who Jesus Christ has made us and realizing I don't have the power to do what it takes. I've been talking uh, for a while with this fellow. wasn't planning on sharing this, but uh, meeting together with this fellow that 
um, for lack of a better word, I would use the word addicted, but you know, he struggled with an addiction to pornography. He started going to uh, a sexual addicts group. And so he's going through the 12 steps, which I believe are, you know, based, I, people could argue this, but I believe there's a, a foundation there that is very parallels or overlaps a walk with Christ. So one of the first things is to realize like, I am powerless over this thing. I am powerless over alcohol. I am powerless over lust. I do not have what, and, and that's where this guy's at that first step. He's like, I've been trying to manage it through programs, through accountability partners, through this. I finally just had to realize I can't do it. Only God can do it. I need to rely on somebody in the steps programs. They would say a higher power. But for us, it's Jesus Christ. And many of us are trying to, without, we're missing the point that we have Jesus Christ. We have the life of Christ in us. And we're trying to manage our sin, manage our righteousness, manage our day, manage our obedience. And we swing between this good and bad and good and bad and good and bad and we live like that as christians and we feel crummy about ourselves and we and it's a miserable christian life and i'm not saying that the holy spirit doesn't convict i i do, I do believe that but what i'm saying is there's freedom from that kind of life if we just realize i'm powerless i don't have what it takes to clean my life up i don't have what it takes to be a good husband I just don't. I would like to think I do. Through Jesus Christ, I have more than enough to be a good husband. Just like through Jesus Christ, I'm clean and pure. The old sinful you has died. God made a new you, which is the true you. That's not true's you. Your soul and body will continue to change, swinging on a pendulum. Father, God wants our new spirit to be the source of our daily living, not our soul or body experience. I want to just stop for a second because I feel like there's a lot to this. I'm going to read through some verses to close here. But are there any questions or comments? I feel like this can be very confusing, and I, I will acknowledge myself. It can feel very confusing. And I know we're getting ready to wrap up here, so someone's like, please don't ask a question. But if you have a question, if you have a question, just really quick, and if we can't answer it quick, we'll Tuck it away for later. Is this totally confusing? Does it make some sense? So my question is, is how do we move with the spirit from the spirit? Yeah. 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 Good question. I think that one, it looks like finding the truth and standing on that truth, even if you don't feel that truth. So I have been forgiven. There are people that walk around in here feeling not forgiven. So, in a practical thing, to walk and go, I'm forgiven. I don't feel forgiven, but I'm going to stand on that anyways, making a decision of the will. Or, and I would say, you know, righteous. 
I've been given the life of Christ. So one of that's like you need to know some truth. You begin to learn truth. And even if you know one truth, you stand on that truth is one way to do it. And then I feel like the other part is just genuinely through a humble prayer or attitude of dependence going, I can't figure this stuff out. It doesn't even make a lot of sense to me, but I'm going to depend on you through the Holy Spirit to, I want this life. I want a life of abundance. I want to, you say we have supposed to have an abundant life. Most Christians are not living an abundant life. We are to have life and have it abundantly. We are to have an abiding life. That means we're supposed to be depending on Christ. So I think it just looks like I'm going to depend on Christ. I'm going to start uh, standing on the truth I know. I don't know if that's a perfect answer, but I feel like the truth you know, don't play the head games with it. Don't argue with it. Just stand on the truth and go, because you're going to never probably feel all of it perfectly. But you can stand on it. I feel like I often feel like the phrases that come to my mind are like, dude, you're a loser. And in one sense, I could stand on that and go, well, in and of myself, I am a loser. But I have to go, what's the unseen is I'm not a loser. Christ died for me. Christ made me new. He made me righteous and he wants to work through me. So that's kind of a practical, like, just because I feel I would say that. Any other questions? All right, so just to kind of make this point here, again, just to wrap up this passage. He says, I wrote you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly didn't mean to the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. In other words, there's a difference between sinners and saints. You're in one of those categories. I understand we all sin, but my point, he's saying you're either in the world or you're in Christ. We're not trying to clean up the world. He says, I'm not telling you to avoid sinful, worldly people. I'm telling you to avoid Christians that are continuing to behave sinfully. So he says, you'd have to be zapped out of this world to get away from all the sinners. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named the brother, anyone, any Christians, any brothers who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So again, he's not just talking about sexual sin here, but he's saying these sins need to be addressed. And I believe at the heart of it, he's going, you're not a sinner. Quit acting like it's okay to be living like sinners. That's not who I made you. I made you pure. And so help the people that are acting impure or living in unrepentance to realize that's wrong. You're not living like who you are. Last week, I gave the example of a bird mooing. That would be something to be addressed if birds were mooing because they're not made to moo. Right? Or if a cow was chirping, you're like, there's something wrong here. And Paul's essentially saying the same thing. If you're a Christian and you've been made pure and you've been made for righteous deeds, it's insane. That's like a bird mooing. That's like a Christian. So that's what he's trying to say here is you need to make it clear there's a problem. We can't hang out anymore until you repent of this or change or have a change of heart about this. 
Yeah. Or what do I have to do with judging those who are outside? In other words, Paul says, like, hey, I'm not even worried about the people in the world. I'm not talking about those people. Do you not judge those who are on the inside? But those who are on the outside, God judges. I think for us as Christians, we need to hear that a lot of time we're trying to clean up the world and get them to be more moral and less sinny. And the reality is he's going, hey, God's going to deal with those people. First of all, just start in the church. Start with yourself and the brothers. Uh, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. In other words, you got sinful people in here. Make sure that issue is being addressed. I would say even for ourselves. So in closing, we may still sin, but we're saints. Do you believe that? We, we got St. Rob, we got St. Mark, got St. Cindy over here, St. Roger. What if we started addressing each other like that and got little pictures that look kind of like in a Renaissance thing and started hanging them up around here? You've got a little halos over our head and be like, here's, here's a picture of St. German. Look at him. Well, that was, we're saints. And so that's how he wants us to behave. He wants us to live like saints. Um, and so uh, the, the sin that's in our life, again, should not be ignored, but we need to go to why is it a problem? Because we weren't created in Christ to be living lives of sin. We are created to be living lives of purity. And I don't mean just sexual purity. I mean righteousness. That's the abundant life. Um, we, we have more we could get into, but I'm already over a little bit. So let's go ahead and pray. And uh, again, I would just ask you, like, man, that was a lot. That was kind of confusing. One, the truth you know, stand on it this week. Two, question your feelings. Don't base your goodness or badness based on how the day is going or how you're doing. Base your goodness or badness on what Jesus Christ has already done and what's permanent about you. And two, if there is sin in your life, address that. Tell Christ you realize that, that you don't want that to be a part of your life. You weren't made that way, and you want that to be removed from your life. And what do you need to do to have that taken care of? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Thank you for your son. We thank you that because of him, we have been made new. We have the possibility of living an abundant life. Help us to be depending on you. Not our own selves, not our own souls, not our own minds, not our own gimmicks or plans or programs or health or schemes, but that we would fully put our trust in your son and what he has done already and what the way he wants to be living through us each day. That we would give up on ourselves and cling wholly to your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Have a great Sunday.